All right, it's the Crass Files podcast with Adam, Wednesday night, 6th of December 2023. This is the second part of Dawn Lester's great presentation looking at virus and germ theory. Hope you guys enjoyed the first part of the podcast tonight. This is the second part going out. I couldn't fit the whole thing up on the website in one go, so I've just split the podcast in two pieces and they're going out together. So number two going up for you guys out there. Hope you're enjoying it. Great work by Dawn Lester. Please get on the website, crassfiles.com. If you'd like to support me, click on one of the members' banners. We're over at Buy Me A Coffee. All the information is up there. And uh, great to have you guys listening in and on deck. Enjoy the second part of this podcast, and we'll be back again soon. Take care. <coughs> Consists of a core of nucleic acid, whether it's DNA or RNA, and that's surrounded by a protein shell. <coughs> Some types of virus are claimed to have a lipid envelope, which gives rise to their classification as enveloped, and those without this structure are called non-enveloped. The definition also claims, um, uh, you know, makes a statement as if it's a fact that viruses are the cause of many diseases, as if this has been definitively proven. But this is not the case. There is no original scientific evidence that definitively demonstrates that any virus is the cause of any disease. As I keep saying, the burden of proof lies with those who propose it. Um, but as we've seen in um, some of the statements I've made before, Dr. Leveson and Dr. Beddo Bailey exposed the lack of scientific proof prior to the invention of the, um, well, their period was prior to the invention of the electron microscope. So people would say, oh, well, you know, we, we we know about it because, you know, since the 1930s, we've had the electron microscope. But Dr. Harold Hillman conducted his work subsequent to its invention. So he'll, um, you know, he, he was aware of the problems, as I've just said, and he's exposed, exposed the flaws. So the origin of where the kind of virus idea as, as being a pathogen came from was the during the 19th century, Scientists who believe in the germ theory had been able to discover a variety of bacteria that appeared to be associated with a number of diseases they were investigating. But they were unable to find a bacterial or even fungal agent associated with some of those diseases. This led them to the belief that there had to be some other organism that was responsible for those other diseases. They believed that it must be an organism that was too small to be seen through the optical microscopes of the day. So there were um, the invention of the electron microscope in the 1930s led to various investigations and they thought they were seeing these tiny particles. Um, but again, these particles are just the result of the cell culture experiments and cannot be assumed to be related to anything within uh, a living, intact human body. So it, there's been a... Um, a misunderstanding or an interpretation of the word virus. But I mean, the word virus had been used for centuries in con connection with various diseases. And it was certainly in use long before the particles that are now called viruses were first seen or even theorised. Um, and this has become a major source of confusion on the topic. So it's incorrect to assume that the particles that are now called viruses are the same entities to which the earlier writings referred. The orig origin of the word virus um, comes from the Latin for poison or noxious substance. And careful reading of the 18th and 19th century writings, particularly that those that refer to smallpox inoculation and vaccination, show that the use of the word virus is clearly intended to refer to some kind of noxious matter. So the practices of inoculation, for example, as explained, said that, um, sorry, that they used the pus from sores on the skins of people with a disease called smallpox. This pus was often referred to by the word virus. The same word was also re used to refer to the pus from the sores on the udders of cows with a disease called cowpox. So this pus from sores um, bears a far closer resemblance to the original meaning of virus as a poison or noxious substance than to any uh, infectious particle. The word infection was also used in many of the writings of the 18th and 19th centuries, but again, not in the context 
or not doesn't appear to be used in the context in which it is now used to revert to the invasion of a germ. In those writings, the word was used in the context of referring to something that contaminates or pollutes. So taking the pus from a person's skin's skin sores and inoculating it into cuts made in the skin of a healthy person will certainly contaminate and can pollute that person's bloodstream. Um, you don't need to invoke um, some kind of minute particle to explain an ensuing illness resulting from blood poisoning. The, the definition of a germ refers to it as a microorganism and an organism is actually a living thing. But the um, definition of a virus does not normally refer to it as an organism, which would tend to suggest that a virus is not considered to be alive, um, which, of course, hasn't been proven to be the case. There's an ongoing debate on the issue of whether viruses are alive or not, although they're moving towards the idea that uh, they are alive, trying to um, make people believe that they are alive. Um, but there are some basic functions that an entity must exhibit in order for it to be living. And this issue is not a, a matter of opinions. So it's not a question of, oh, well, I think a, a virus is alive and somebody's saying, I don't think it's, you know, if something is alive, it must fulfill certain criteria. Um, Dr. Lynn Margulis, who's a PhD, um, again, a member of the prestigious National Academy of Sciences until her death in 2011, uh, wrote in her book, Symbiotic Planet, that um, that there is a distinction between living and non-living. And she refers to viruses as non-living and says they are not alive since outside living cells, they do nothing ever. I mean, this is assuming that they are entities, of course. So sorry, I'll restart that quote. They are not alive since outside living cells, they do nothing ever. Viruses require the metabolism of the live cell because they lack the requisites to generate their own. Metabolism, the incessant chemistry of self-maintenance, is an essential feature of life. Viruses lack this. Um, as I said, that sort of suggests that she might believe viruses are, are entities as such, even though not alive. Um, but she was a PhD rather than a um, virologist. So... Uh, and again, there's another article, Are Viruses Alive? And this shows how the um, interpretation of viruses has changed or the definition. So first seen as poisons, which, sorry, sorry I'll, I'll continue the quote. First seen as poisons, then as life forms, then as biological chemicals. Viruses today are thought of as being in a grey area between living and non-living. So again, first seen as poisons. I mean, that that's the origin of the word virus you know from the latin so it's not seen as poisons that's that's the definition so it shows how the our language is being manipulated to get us to believe somewhat different um somewhat differently from the, the real meanings of words but again you know this you know a gray area between living and non-living i mean that that's that's really ridiculous but uh even though it's saying it's a gray area they're still saying that these um, things that are called viruses were actually pathogenic. So, you know, the, they're saying that researchers realised that certain diseases, including rabies and foot and mouth, were caused by particles that seemed to behave like bacteria, but were much smaller. So, again, this suggestion is that viruses must be alive because they claim to behave like bacteria, which are living entities. Uh, which I hope I'll have time to get onto, but I'm not sure that I will. Uh, and again, using terminology like, you know, researchers realised it's a question. It, it makes us believe that they that this has been proven, you know, that it's oh well, they realised it as if they had scientifically proven it. So um, to be honest, it is if more people knew that viruses are non-living particles, um, and, you know, they're shown to be inner outside of the host cell. Uh, it would it would actually make a huge difference to the way people view what's going on and what some of the plans are being put out as to what may happen. You know, some some new pandemic, which obviously isn't going to be the case, um, because if you're saying, well, these particles are non-living, 
then how can they spread? You know, it just gets people to start thinking and start realising that they are being um, given in incorrect information. So the, the idea is that, you know, if they're inert, then they cannot move. And if they can't move, um, then how can they spread? So, again, looking into the idea of what uh, viruses are, there's a... Um, on the uh, website of the University of California Museum of Paleontology, they say when when it comes into contact with a host cell, a virus can insert its genetic material into its host. And another article, again from 2007, viruses initiate infection by transferring their genetic material across the cellular membrane and into the appropriate compartment of the cell. So again, it shows or it indicates that there's some kind of activity and if a virus isn't alive then how can it actually perform these actions so once you start really looking into all of it you can see that there's actually nowhere near as much that is actually known about viruses and their alleged mechanism of action in causing a so-called infection um and you know the more you look at it the more you realize it's a whole collection of unproven assumptions and suppositions Hi, so Dawn. Um, just um, what you were saying before, please just um, <clears throat> go through what you've, what, what you need to. Don't, don't worry about rushing. I'm here. We're recording it, so like, um, if we need to go a little bit over, you just make sure you get through what you need to, and what you've prepared uh, for the podcast because it's very important. So you just, um, that's all right. If 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 we go a little bit more, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Just just continue. And make sure you you put through what you need to, and um, and there's no need to rush. Okay. Okay. Uh, are you happy with where we are so far? That's absolutely brilliant, and and I think you've you're covering the timeline beautifully. And if there's if there's bits and pieces you feel like you might be rushed to put through, just put them through, and and we'll get this done. That's fine. All right. Thank you. Right. So we have um, all these ideas about viruses. Um, so a simple example is the cold virus. It's claimed to be transmitted via saliva or mucus particles when a person sneezes or coughs. These particles are said to be inhaled by another person who then becomes infected by the virus, which travels through the person's body to the appropriate cells of their lung tissues. The transmission of any viral particle attached to saliva or mucus traveling through the air has never been observed. These viral particles are only ever observed in a laboratory under an electron microscope. And I might add after cell culture experiments, which involve the use of a whole load of other um, toxic chemicals and other matter. So whatever these particles are that are seen under an electron microscope can never be proven to have only originated from the human sample. I know that's been covered a lot. I'm not going to go through the cell culture experiment. I'm just giving some background here. So again, the transmission of viruses in the air is an assumption, as is their ability to travel through a human body. These have never been observed. And again, empirical evidence, which is observation in the real world, um, is extremely important. It's not just hearsay. So um, we have the other um, idea of, uh, well, the other kind of main so-called infectious disease is the flu. And most people have now heard an awful lot about the 1918 or, or Spanish flu, as it's sometimes called, uh, that's claimed to have killed many tens of millions of people. Um, these estimates vary between 20 and 100 million people. Um, and you say, well, <laughs> that that's a wide range. So, you know, you kind of need to raise questions about, you know, whether those people actually died from what is called flu or, or were they uh, casualties from the effects of World War One, because 1918 was the end of what for many countries was had been a, you know, a four year war. Um, there. So, you know, this is, you know, for some reason, it's the 1918 flu, but there are certain reports that 
there were many more, uh, sorry, that the epidemic lasted far longer than just this single year. Um, and also the, the you know, the, there were claims that the disease was highly contagious. Um, but again, once you start looking into it, there's some very serious problems with these claims. Now, the epidemic of 1918 is usually referred to as a viral disease, although initially there were ideas that it was caused by a bacterium. Herbert Shelton describes some of the early experiments conducted on volunteers from the U.S. Naval Detention Camp to determine the alleged bacterial cause and to, to, to um, apologize to test the transmission of the disease. In his book, The Hygienic System, Volume 6, Orthopathy, he describes one of the experiments conducted to test the transmission of the disease and explains that... Ten other men were carried to the bedside of ten new cases of influenza and spent 45 minutes with them. Each well man had ten sick men cough in his face. And he recalls that these the results of these experiments were that, and I quote, none of these volunteers developed any symptoms of influenza following the experiment. Now, it may be suggested that 10 is too small a number to be statistically significant sample size. But this argument would miss the salient point, which is that each healthy man had 10 sick men cough in his face and none of them became ill. So this fact alone contradicts the idea that viral particles or fact, whatever germ particles hitchhike onto saliva or mucus that is ejected from the body during a sneeze or cough. According to the germ theory, though, all of the healthy men should have been infected by the viruses and become ill. The fact that they did not fall ill poses a direct and serious challenge to the basic assumption that flu is infectious. And an important point to make is exceptions to any rule is an indication that the rule is flawed and needs to be re-examined. And as I've said a few times, the empirical evidence is primary. So, you know, we look for the evidence and then if the evidence or if the data doesn't follow the theory then it's the theory that needs to be looked at not the data to be manipulated which is often what happens so i mean you could say oh well this was you know 100 years ago or more than 100 years ago but the the lack of understanding about the mechanism for viral infection of cells has not improved since the um well, since that date or, or you know, even to various other articles that I've referred to, the 2007 articles. So there's still um, a lack of understanding about and an absence of proof of the mechanism involved. So there's a 2015 article um, about a non-enveloped virus. Sorry, the, the title is A Non-Enveloped Virus Hijacks Host Disaggregation Machinery to Translocate Across the Endoplasmic particular membrane <laughs> it's a long title but it's an important point they make which is how non-enveloped viruses penetrate a host membrane to enter cells and cause disease remains an enigmatic step and i would remind people that was that article was dated 2015 so there's a um a website of uh, of the encyclopedia of life it's a project that promotes the medical establishment view and this contains a page about viruses and refers to them as microscopic organisms, um, which again demonstrates the efforts to present the case that viruses are alive because the definition of an organism is something that's alive and viruses have never been proven to be alive, so they cannot be an organism. So again, this is how the propaganda works. So to further promote this view, the Encyclopedia of Life webpage provides information about the stages in a viral life cycle the first stage of which is claimed to be one in which a virus attaches itself to a cell. So they say attachment is the intermolecular binding between viral capsid proteins and receptors on the outer membrane of the host cell. Now, as I said just before, um, the problem with this is that Dr. Harold Hillman has identified receptors as cellular artifacts that are generation, generated by the preparation procedures used in such experiments. And he also says that the endoplasmic reticulum is another artifact. So that's the um, the title of that 
um, after the 2015 article talks about the endoplasmic reticulum membrane. So again, this is another artifact according to Dr. Harold Hillman. Um, so once the virus has penetrated the cell, it's claimed to replicate, which is said to be what initiates the disease process. So the Encyclopedia of Life webpage refers to numerous mechanisms involved in this process that include what's called cell lysis and the ultimate death of the cell. Their webpage makes a significant statement that, quote, in multicellular organisms, if sufficient numbers of cells die, the whole organism may suffer gross metabolic disruption or even mortality. And this is something quite um, common with this sort of statements about, oh, well, you know, the virus infects the cell and it explodes and kills the cell. And that's what makes us ill and can kill people. But there's a huge problem with this statement. It, because many billions of human cells are said to die every day. Cell death is a normal part of the processes of human life. I mean, we know that our organs um, are regenerated various um, various timescales. I mean, certain organs are, take years or some are months and because the cells regenerate. And so the organs regenerate, you know, there are new cells. So the idea that cell death is synonymous with disease is extremely misleading. Uh, and it complete because it completely contradicts the known biological functions of the human body. So, you know, the idea that cell death equates to disease is misleading. I mean, that's really important that cell death is not a disease process. But again, that's probably what they or that is what they see during their laboratory experiments that, you know, the cell dies. And that's what they see in the um, from the electron microscope, the, you know, um, the cells in, in the course of the days where they've left the cell culture. They see that the cells break apart and they die and they say that is the result of the um, viral infection. But that is not proven. Um, I mean, there are genuine reasons for cells to die after tissue samples have been subjected to all these different preparation procedures, um, such as the ones that I, I explained above. So, again, it, Virus Mania, you can find this, uh, sorry, the book Virus Mania. They say this phenomenon is particular, particularly virulent in bacterial and viral research and in the whole pharmaceutical developments of medicines altogether where laboratory experiments on tissue samples, which are tormented with a variety of often highly reactive chemicals, allow few sorry, conclusions about reality. And yet conclusions are constantly drawn and then pass straight on to the production of medications and vaccines. So again, yet more people showing that the laboratory experiments or the results of laboratory experiments are interpreted in a way that is convenient for the pharmaceutical industry. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that they are correct. So um, really what they're saying is uh, supportive of what Dr. Hillman says. I mean, you, you know, there, the, these are just a few examples of some of the people who are speaking out about these procedures. Um, the thing is that most scientific information about viruses is derived from these these kinds of laboratory experiments. So viruses are reported to have replicated inside a cell after which the cell dies. Um, but this even if that is what they see or how they interpret it, it, but it still doesn't prove that the virus killed the cell, nor does it prove that the virus initiates any disease process. It merely proves that the cell died after the process is used in the experiments. And again, the authors of Virus Mania, um, Torsten and Engelbrecht and Dr. Klaus Kernlein, because um, that's the first edition that they think that came out in 2007. Anyway, they say another important question must be raised. Even when a supposed virus does kill cells in a test tube in vitro, can we safely conclude that these findings can be carried over to a living organism in vivo. And this is a key point. Just because something happens in a test tube does not prove that that is what happens in a living organism, because that living organism is an intact 
interconnected system. It is not just a machine of separate parts. So the assumption that a particular viral particle causes a particular infection is solely based on the claim that certain antibodies have sometimes been found in samples extracted from some people exhibiting certain symptoms. In other words, there appears to be a correlation between symptoms and antibodies. It should be noted that viruses are not detected directly. It's an important point. However, many people are diagnosed as suffering from a viral illness without any investigations or tests having been conducted to ascertain whether they have been infected by an allegedly pathogenic virus. A diagnosis is frequently based on the different symptoms that a patient experiences and reports to their doctor. People can also be discovered to have, um, well, claimed to have a virus in their bodies or to be suffering from a virus without exhibiting the specific symptoms of the disease it is alleged to cause. And if this is the case, then it's it's claimed to represent a, a dormant stage of the virus. And we have the same thing with bacteria, which I'll come on to, hopefully. Um, so they just say that um, the Encyclopedia of Life web, web page claims that virus viruses may simply reside inside an organism without significant harm. So again, these are the contradictions. Say, well, virus, we're told viruses make us ill. Well, apparently not always. And some of this information is not as obvious as the mainstream media propaganda. So um, again, they're talking about how viruses can be dormant and then activated. Uh, but they don't tell us how the virus is activated. There are no explanations for how, why they're dormant, how it's reactivated. Um, you know, there, there's so many, so many contradictions. And, you know, there have been a few brave scientists who've been prepared to um, speak out about, you know, the whole thing with viruses. Um, and certainly over the last four years, we, we've had more and more people speaking out. But one of one of them, one of the earliest and, and definitely before 2020 was Dr. Stefan Lanker. And he conducted um, in an interview that he had in 2005. Um, he says, in the course of my studies, I and others have not been able to find proof of the existence of disease causing viruses anywhere. Now, the important thing is that Dr. Stefan Lanker um, is a biologist, but he he was he also studied viral. So he was a virologist, even though he doesn't claim to have anything to do with that that field of uh, <laughs> endeavour. Um, so he as he was interviewed by David Crow, uh, the late David Crow in 2016, where again he talks about his um, court case and the um, challenge to the scientific community to provide genuine proof. In 2015, a German doctor accepted the challenge and quoted a set of six papers. Uh, the, the first court case claimed in favour of the doctor, um, but the uh, Dr. Lang, I mean, it's reported in the new, I mean, if you look at any of the media reports, they say that Dr. Lanker lost the case. Uh, he then appealed and the appeal was heard in 2016 and this time the decision was found in favour of Dr Lanker because they are on this on actually analysing the papers they realised that they failed to provide the necessary proof unfortunately you won't find too much information about that um, that decision because it's pretty much suppressed in the mainstream media because they don't want people to know that in fact the court case proved or, or showed that the papers alleged to be the definitive proof do not provide the proof they claim. So, uh, I mean, you know, as, as we do as well, the, you know, Dr. Lanker says, you know, investigate for yourself. You know, don't just take our word for it, but have a look for yourself. And I think you can see from some of the um, sources I've been citing, you know, there, there's plenty of evidence out there. It takes some unearthing. Um, but it can it can be found. So, you know, really, in conclusion, um, there is no evidence for the idea that viruses are pathogenic and infect people and cause disease. 
So we can move on to bacteria if we have time. I'll, I'll try and keep this fairly short. I mean, there's quite a lot of information. I mean, bacteria are living organisms. They're also accused of being pathogens. And again, um, incorrectly, they're, they're not pathogens. And this may be somewhat more surprising to some people. So we've got um, the, again, the germ theory of disease is... Um, attributed to Dr. Robert Cop, but I mean, there were some other ideas that preceded him. There was one theory um, proposed by Dr. Plensis in 1762, and it wasn't until the 19th century that the Italian entomologist Agostino Bassi performed experiments that are alleged to be the first to provide proof for the theory. He was talking about a silkworm disease. So um, during the 19th, uh, sorry, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, many diseases were rife throughout uh, Europe. These diseases include what are called typhus, cholera, tuberculosis and smallpox. It is claimed that smallpox alone was responsible for nearly half a million million deaths each year during the 18th century. And again, I'd, I'd sort of question those claims because I'd wonder where they got their data from. So, again, these are the periods where the measures that were often used, not necessarily all the times, but within, you know, certain communities um, where William described, William White described them as a combination of absurdity with nastiness. And when you have a look at um, some of them, uh, it's more than that. I mean, a lot of the <clears throat> treatments were arsenic based, mercury based um, and a few other nasty substances were used uh, as the basis of medicine now there were also um homeopaths there were also um, naturopaths there were also um people who were working with herbs with natural medicine so i'm not talking about them it's just a certain sector that were treating um or, or using these toxic treatments um for people who were ill so we've got the um we then have the scientific revolution uh, that began in the middle of the 16th century and the it, it, it actually affected the field of medicine, um, but unfortunately it didn't overturn the old belief that disease was the result of an attack by some kind of external entity. Um, so they've, they've carried on with that. It was carried through to the work of Dr. Robert Koch, who is regarded as the founder of modern bacteriology. Um, but, but like Louis Pasteur, I would say he's falsely venerated as a hero. Uh, he's said to have proved or provided the necessary proof that certain diseases were caused by certain bacteria. But this isn't the case. The um, what he um, proposed were four or four postulates. They Although they're called Cox postulates, there seemed to be some idea that other people had similar ideas that he just developed or or plagiarized. Who knows? I'm not totally sure. So, again, that's just um, a possibility. But he, but they we talk about Cox postulates. But the first postulate, which I think is the most crucial for determining a causal agent of disease, <clears throat> it has, I suppose, really two criteria. The first, if you like, the that the microbe alleged to cause a specific disease must be found in all people suffering from that disease. And the second part says that the microbe should not be found in anyone who does not have the disease it is claimed to cause. Um, I mean, this is just pure logic, because if something is supposed to be a cause, it should always be there and it should never be there when the situation it is claimed to cause um, doesn't exist. So um, the point is that an exception, as we've talked about, exceptions to the rule means the rule must be um, at least re-examined. Um, but this this exception shows that the microbe. Um, so sorry, any exception to either of these means the microbe should not be regarded as the causal agent of the disease. But once you start looking at different diseases and um, it, you start finding that there are exceptions to both criteria of Cox postulates. In other words, bacteria have been found in the bodies of people who do not have the disease they are alleged to cause. 
and the relevant bacteria have not been found in all people with the disease they are alleged to cause. So again, that's pure logic. So it's these exceptions should have persuaded at least some scientists to say, oh, this isn't always the case. Therefore, we need to have another look at the theory. Um, you know, it's the theory that's that needs to be reconsidered, not the data. Um, but of course, you know, there's a great reluctance to even reassess this theory because it's it suits the medical establishment. Um, so. Instead, what they've they've tried to do is solve the anomalies by making adaptations to their theory. Um, so one of these adaptations um, involves <laughs> involves the um, concept of asymptomatic carriers. So these are the people who are found to have the so-called bacteria that are claimed to cause a disease. But people who but they don't have the disease so they have the bacteria but don't have the disease so they are called asymptomatic carriers and we know that was um also used over the last four years in this um with this whole stuff to do with covid and and claiming that oh you know well you could be an asymptom you could have the virus and just because you haven't got symptoms then it doesn't mean you've not been infected i mean just the it's complete failure of logic, but of course, having people in fear means that uh, people aren't thinking as clearly as they ought to be. So the, the, the point is that if somebody is supposedly an asymptomatic carrier, they can transmit their bacteria to other people. These other people will become infected and fall ill. And you think, well, th that makes no sense, which, of course, it doesn't. Um, so, I mean, there's all sorts of um, unexplained ideas so you know how are for example how are bacteria supposed to be transferred from the bodies of the carrier to another person and there's no explanation for the mechanism by which bacteria produce the variety of symptoms of an infectious disease and if you think about the diseases that bacteria are supposed to cause i mean there's a whole range of symptoms they're supposed different types of diseases and you say well how um but there's no explanation that's where we get to the chasm of faith when they go, oh, trust me, I'm a scientist. Trust me, I'm a doctor or oh, you, you don't understand these things. Um, and when you get that kind of explanation, you have to say, well, sorry, that doesn't answer my question. Um, the, the other thing, of course, asymptomatic carriers, even though they are how their body's supposed to be housing a, a bacterium, they don't become ill. So. How come, you know, why aren't they ill if these germs are supposed to cause disease? So, you know, they, they just, oh, well, they have a latent infection. Um, so, again, you know, this this just contradicts the basic idea that germs cause disease. That's what we're told. Germs cause disease. If you're infected, then you become ill. Um, so one of these um, pathogens, interestingly, uh, that's supposed to be uh, it's supposed to produce asymptomatic carriers is a common bacterium that's called Staphylococcus. Now, people may hear about, you know, a staph infection. And they say, oh, a staph infection causes illness. Um, but this it's widely acknowledged that this bacterium, this Staphylococcus, can be found on the skin of healthy people. So, again, this fails Cox's first postulate. The bacterium cannot therefore be regarded as a pathogen. And it's important that the reason for citing Staphylococcus is that that's one of the so-called superbugs that's claimed to cause what's called a MRSA infection. And, you know, that's something that quite often is claimed to happen in hospital settings. So, again, we have various examples like the docs, uh, Dr. Max Pettenkoffer, who is said to have swallowed, um, I mean, on more than one occasion in front of his students, um, the, you know, these different um, glass containing apparently millions of cholera bacilli, um, and yet he failed to ever become ill. So, um, you know, as, as we can say, just, just because you're finding a microbe, it's not enough to, you know, that's not sufficient to just convict it of causing a disease. So, again, we have the analogy of firemen blaming firemen at the scene of a fire for being the cause, when, of course, you know, we know that firemen are putting them out. Um, and that's actually very close to the real um, functions of, of bacteria. They are there to help the situation. They certainly are not the cause. So um, the other thing is 
is that the bacteria must always be present in people with the disease. Um, it is alleged to cause. And, you know, there are various examples where you can find where this just this wasn't the case. I mean, the um, in his book, Orthopathy, Herb Shelton refers to an article published in the journal The Lancet where um, well, this is in 1898, where Dr. Bedo Bailey says that the diphtheria bacillus is missing in 14 percent of cases of clinical diphtheria. So if the bacillus is missing, then how can it be a cause? So, again, another um, and again with TB, because it's important with TB or tuberculosis, because that's the disease that Dr. Robert Cock is said to have proved was caused by a bacterium. And that's one of his supposed uh, um, main discoveries. Um, but again, Herbert Shelton quotes Dr. Hadwin saying nobody has ever found a tubercle bacillus in the early stages of tuberculosis. Now, if something is supposed to be the cause, it would always be present at the earliest stages. And if it's never found in the early stages, then you have to raise you have to ask the question, how can it possibly be a cause? And as I said, the, you know, it's the reason for talking about TB is because that's what Dr. Robert Koch is, is known for again. So we've got, again, referring back to Dr. Hillman with the different procedures of um, being able to observe bacteria. And it involves various fixing and stainings. And Dr. Robert Koch, I mean, when you look at his his work, uh, he used both fixing and staining preparation procedures and of course um you know w without even taking into account the possibility that those procedures would have affected what he was what he was actually um um observing so when we start looking at bacteria you know we find that they live in a variety of hab um, habitats they you know that they're they're acknowledged to live in the soil water and air um but according to the definition um the definition of uh, the official definition of um bacteria they uh, it says that others are parasites of humans animals and plants so again um a parasite is defined as an organism that contributes nothing to the welfare of the host and when you start looking at the functions of bacteria you find that they are they perform actually really important functions that substantially contribute to the welfare of their hosts so they live in soil um, where they uh, fix nitrogen they also inhabit the digestive systems uh, of animal well, they of animals uh, and they live in our digestive systems as well their functions are absolutely vital um, it's estimated that, you know, the human body contains a similar number of bacteria to cells. There are some people that say the human body contains more bacteria than cells. So, again, these are different ideas, but it's the human body is definitely a natural habitat of bacteria. And that is not a problem, They, which really goes to show that calling them parasites uh, is is complete, is a complete misnomer. They are not parasites. They are not invaders that do nothing for the host. They are essential. Um, so, again, um, we get the idea that some bacteria are simultaneously harmless and harmful. I mean, one of them is E. coli, which is supposed to be harmless as well as a dangerous pathogen. And, and again, that's nonsense. But the fact is that they're found uh, e. coli are found in healthy people, so they cannot be the cause of some, you know, dangerous illness. So um, the idea is that some of these bacteria switch from being harmless to being harmful. Um, but according to various articles, they say that um, they don't understand the mechanisms by which bacteria transform from common cell to pathogenic um, so you know they're part of our system and yet they be suddenly become pathogenic but they don't understand the mechanisms so again we have to be very careful about what we hear them saying I mean bacteria are sorry the medical establishment when they say oh you know 
they do this, they do that. Um, we cannot take them at, at face value. We have to say, well, how do you know that? Please provide the evidence. You know, staying polite, but just saying, can you please provide the evidence? Um, so we've got an understanding of bacteria. You know, they they are truly ubiquitous. They live everywhere. Extreme cold, extreme heat. They live in deep sea hydrothermal vents. Just, they just live absolutely everywhere. Um, they have a, a number of functions. Um, one of them is that they are what is called saprotrophic, which is that they are decomposers. And one that has profound implications because it actually explains their presence within these diseased tissues. So when they're found on in diseased tissue, there is a purpose, which means that they are breaking down, decomposing the dead organic matter and or dead and dying matter for recycling. These are not harmful processes. As I said, you know, human cells dies every die, human cells die every day this is a normal process and what the bacteria do is help to decompose these damaged as well as dead materials from the body uh, it's it's part of the natural recycling um and we have ideas that um but you know if bacteria are found in the blood that means you've you've got a deadly um blood infection and again um, that's that's a mistaken idea that bacteria are invaders and pathogenic. Um, but that's because the idea they have they still hold on to the idea that the blood should be um, a sterile environment. But what's interesting also is that um, bacteria not only are uh, beneficial, but they they are they have different forms, but those forms are not separate entities they have what it, the function um is called pleomorphism and that means that bacteria can change their shape change their entire form into a different form and that form will be relevant to the environment of wherever it is so again this is where we move into what's called terrain and it's not a theory terrain the terrain paradigm because we all respond to our environment and there are um it's not i mean pleomorphism might be something that people are becoming more familiar with but it's not a new it's not a newly recognized phenomenon it's uh, it's been understood for a while um in 1938 dr john tilden um, actually referred to referred to it, although without using the word, he said that the explorers of the microscopic world have some excuse for the infinite number of varieties already discovered. There is no question for these infinitely small beings have the habit of taking on an individuality or personality in keeping with the chemic changes of the medium with which they are correlated. So, again, this shows that there are um, there's acknowledged an acknowledgement that bacteria change their form according to their environment. Now, this also is is not recognised by the medical establishment. They they have the idea that the, each individual bacterium has a specific it is a specific type and it never changes or maybe slightly it might slightly change. I mean, there's a there's a small recognition that they may <clears throat> that they may change slightly according to the culture medium. They're starting to discover that. Um, but what they aren't prepared to accept is that it's a complete change of the bacterium from one form to another, depending on the environment that they are they are working with. So um, there was a, an article by. Dr. Milton Wainwright, um, where he, he just acknowledges that the <clears throat> the medical establishment are reluctant to um, take on the concept of what he calls extreme pleomorphism. Um, and he says, while claims for such limited pleomorphism offend no one, modern reports of extreme pleomorphism are likely to suffer derision or more usually just be ignored. And, you know, deriding claims and ignoring evidence is not scientific um you know if, if there's an a, an observed phenomenon 
uh, um, scientists should say, oh, that's interesting. Let's have a look. But, you know, when something doesn't fit the consensus view, because, of course, the the view that um, bacteria are pleomorphic, they change according to their environment, really destroys the idea that bacteria are um, are pathogens, are dangerous disease causing agents. Um, so we have the idea of, you know, bacterial toxins, um, which some people say, oh, you know, bacteria produce toxins. That's what makes us ill. Um, but again, because we have trillions of bacteria, even if a tiny percentage would produce these toxins, people would always be ill. Um, so one of the explanations for the role of bacteria from Dr. Henry Beelett, uh, he says, after the cells have been damaged by toxic wastes, it is easy for bacteria as scavengers to attack and devour the weakened, injured and dead cells. As I said before, that's how bacteria function. They are decomposers of dead and dying material. They they recycle. Um, they are the recyclers. Without them, um, you know, we would we would have we would have real problems. They uh, I mean, the other thing is that bacteria are also are in some way recognized as decomposers, uh, as are fungi. Um uh, in the processes of biodegradation of various environmental pollutants. And, you know, there's a, you know, you can read where they uh, acknowledge that bacteria are, are active agents in petroleum degradation. And um, it's even so several bacteria are even known to feed exclusively on hydrocarbons. So, again, you know, they're not infecting the degradation of petroleum. They're, they're decomposing. Um, they're also capable of biodegrading many other pollutants and interestingly e coli is one of those bacteria that can um actually decompose certain toxins so that would be their their function within the body they're decomposing um you know damaged matter that's why you will find their presence um but if you're healthy you know they're they're just naturally there so um, that's a kind of overview of bacteria. I mean, they, you know, because they're still regarded as germs, observed and investigated from completely the wrong, the wrong way. Um, so from my perspective, bacteria are far from disease causing. Their role is an important one that is vital for the continuing existence of life um and i'll end with two great quotes one from dr margulis she said life is an incredibly complex interdependence of matter and energy among millions of species beyond and within our own skin so you know the world isn't a battleground our bodies aren't battlegrounds where germs have to be killed um, because clearly what kills the germs will surely kill all life forms and i'll finish with a quote from dr stefan Nanka, who in his 2005 interview said the basic of biological life is togetherness is symbiosis and in this there is no place for war and destruction and that is a perfect point on which to end because that is really what we need to learn biological life is togetherness